trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad you could could uh, be a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And you know, one of the things that uh, that this, one reason that this show exists is to challenge the narrative, and I mean to 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 ask why are things uh, developing the way that they're developing. And a good case in point is right now there's a there's a very overt ongoing effort to rename and erase history. It's taking root not just in big cities where they're toppling staple statues. It's taking place even in small town America. And uh, interest, interestingly enough, one of the places where this is happening is uh, my old stomping grounds of St. George, Utah, where Utah's Dixie has been under attack by the recently woke. And is is essentially deemed as something we have to change this, uh, starting with what was Dixie College, then Dixie State University. I want to welcome Brad Bennett back to the program. Brad is part of the Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. Brad, it's been a little while since we spoke, but my understanding is a lot has taken place in terms of the name change for Dixie State University. Where do we begin? Well, I guess the best place to begin is... uh you know, for some people who don't know, let's catch them up real quick. So Dixie State University, really, if you want to know the truth, it was probably four or five years ago that they really decided they wanted to change the name. They just aren't being very uh, honest about that. But um, but yeah, about four or five years ago, they came up with this idea that they were going to go to a polytechnic um, model, and uh, which is fine. They can do that and start adding a lot of these STEM type majors and programs. And so, um, you know, fast forward up till about a year ago, they decided that uh, they were gonna just try to get the name changed to the school, um, remove Dixie from it and uh, not say really much to anybody about it. And they were relatively successful uh, on that venture until they got to the Senate. Um, We were aware of it at that time and and we got it to to where that bill failed and had to be revised, and and they sent sent it back to start over again um, to um, have to involve the community. But the problem was uh, when the bill was rewritten, it didn't um, make it. Uh, there was no there was no uh, checks and balances to where you know, DSU couldn't manipulate everything they were doing. So they got to choose everything that happened. Uh, so they were able to um, pick, you know, anybody they wanted to do specific surveys and studies. They were able to um, pick all the people they wanted on the focus groups, et cetera. So they, they had complete control of, of what that what community involvement looked like. And so they manipulated the whole system from start to finish and that brings us more up to now where um they're nearing the end of all that and so they had a name recommendation committee that they were forced to form because of the utah senate mandate and you know they had to 
come up with a name to forward to the Dixie State Board of Trustees. And so they did. They, they put all their minds together and uh, they came up with uh, UPSU. Um, so that, that was uh, Utah Polytechnic State University. And it was uh, pretty much universally hated by all. Um, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. I mean, the students were, were protesting uh, right away. Um, there, were, there was a petition on change.org that garnered, you know, over 17,000 signatures in less than a week. Um, there was over 6,000 negative comments within just uh, four or five days on social media. I mean, to put it in uh, the words of uh, Tiffany Wilson, who's on the board of trustees, it was an epic failure. And uh, that's probably the only thing we'll ever agree on, but uh, we definitely are in agreement there. So it was interesting too, because when the naming committee was narrowed everything down to two names, they, they came down to Utah Polytechnic State University, and the other one was Utah Technological University. And one of the board members also, well, a couple of them were actually on the uh, Utah Board of Higher Education, which I consider to be a huge conflict of interest. But nonetheless, they're on the naming committee. And one of them uh, was the chair of the committee uh, on that uh, board that uh, is over the technical schools in Utah. And he, he said, you know, we really shouldn't pick anything with tech in it or technical in it because if we do that's going to upset those guys and so that's why they went with upsu and then when that got you know ridiculous amounts of backlash the board uh, of trustees put literally 15 minutes into this when they just said okay well i guess we're just going to go with uh, utah tech university now so you know, it, it, they're just grasping at straws here. They're just coming up with pretty much any name they can, uh, you know, that still has tech in it or, or polytechnic in it because they, they they're in love with that word. You know, Jordan Sharp, who's the VP of uh, marketing over there, says that tech is sexy. And, uh, you know, they've decided a long time ago and they've talked about it uh, here and there uh, privately, you know, that they want tech or, or, or polytech in the name and they want it in so bad that it hurts but they but the public doesn't want it they feel that it devalues the school it makes it sound like a trade school others feel that it makes it sound like a, a research institution which it's not and probably will never be able to be one of those uh you have to and to be a research school you have to have approval from the legislature and currently the only two universities in our state that have that approval is uh, the, the U of U and USU. So, and it's hard to get, and um, they'll probably never get it. And, and another point is that there was 2,100 graduates this year. And, you know, roughly 70, 80% of them didn't have a STEM type degree. So it's not a tech school. Um, you know, maybe one day it could be one, but uh, it certainly isn't one now. And um, a lot of people are probably gonna see this as a bait and switch um, if they are to change the name, but that's, that's what, where it's at. That's the name they want to forward to the board of higher education is Utah tech university. Let's, let's back up a little bit further too, though, about, uh, for those who may not be familiar with the reasoning behind why does it have to be something other than Dixie? What was, what was the official justification given for why we can no longer 
have any way, shape, or form of, of Dixie. Yeah, I mean, the real reason they can't be Dixie is because they just don't want it, and they've made, in my opinion, promises uh, to certain groups that it's going to be annihilated. But, uh, but yeah, the reason that they cite publicly is that, you know, uh, cancel culture, you know, that uh, there's negative connotations uh, to the word Dixie, particularly outside of Utah. Now, keep in mind, though, the school is uh, thriving. Uh, it's had a 40% increase in the last five years. It's ranked the seventh best public uh, school in the West. So hang on a second. Brad, is it, is it is it safe to say then that that name has not held them back one whit? Of course not. From transitioning yeah, I mean, from a junior college to a full-blown university and, and onward and upward. Yeah, it's not held it back at all. I mean, we're talking, we have, uh, you know, uh, job placement rates uh, as high as 97%. And, but one of the, another reason they're giving for getting rid of Dixie is they said that it's going to just stop. It's going to stop students from being able to get jobs. It hasn't right now, but somehow magically it, it will. It must be difficult to be able to see the future like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, to, to carry uh, that kind of psychic burden. No, I'm I'm being <laughs> facetious here, but that yeah. th- this has had the feel from the very beginning, and and it goes back even to the to the time when I was living there and before I came there. There's a sense that someone just wants to get in there and tinker and fix in their mind what they what they feel like needs to be fixed. But the only people who for whom this is a problem um, is, is basically them. It may be a very small circle of friends or, or people, you know, at different levels of academia. It's not the common person, the people who live and breathe and have have made their living and made their home in Utah's Dixie. Yeah, I mean, there's been polls done. They're independent of of Dixie State University, and those are the most accurate because they don't have any bias in them. Um, but it shows that, you know, the Southern Utah residents, it's like 80, 85% want the name to stay. And then when uh, the rest of Utah is polled, um, it's, you know, anywhere from 61 to 70% that want it to stay. So Utahns by and large do not want the name change. So it's not, it's not that, you know, it, it's, it's the administration of Dixie State University who wants this change. They just so happen to have enough people in the right places that they're getting traction with this. Okay. Brad Bennett is my guest, and he is with the Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, where it goes from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Brad Bennett. Brad is with the Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. And Brad, I, I want to just point out that you know, the, the people who have, have been against the name change for Dixie State University, um, they're, they're coming from, from the standpoint of they feel attacked for something that, uh, that none of them share any kind of collective guilt in. Um, some people have tried to paint the name Dixie as it's a racist relic and it's, it's nothing that, can, that a person can have, uh, you know, any kind of uh, allegiance to or sympathy towards in this modern world. And yet the people who have pushed for this change... Um, have have been very much part of the 
political machinery as opposed to representing the common person or people within the community. Talk to me about the, the way that, uh, that those sitting in those positions of authority on the board of trustees or, or elsewhere have responded to people who feel like they're being attacked over something that, uh, that they had no part in, meaning, you know, systemic racism. Well, I mean, they, they, they have an agenda they want to accomplish and they're going to do it, you know, at, at all costs. And so anytime there's an opposing voice from the community or even students, they just uh, dismiss it. And uh, a lot of people are being ignored. The students said, uh, quote, they felt disrespected. That was the word they used. Um, you know, Randy Wilkinson, who is uh, a pillar of the community over here, um, you know, senior citizen, um, highly, highly respected. He was on the, the the naming committee. Now, keep in mind this. They were forced to have a, um, a name recommendation committee by the Senate because they didn't get any community involvement the first time around. And so the Senate wanted to try to make sure they did this time. But again, they could stack the deck in their favor, which they did. And so out of 19 members, we only identified maybe four that were pro-Dixie from the very beginning because they got to pick all of them. You know, DSU did. So Randy Wilkinson was one of them. Uh, At the very uh, last meeting of the name recommendation committee before they picked a name and sent it up to the board of trustees, uh, Randy and two others, uh, you know, Darcy um, Stewart and Ralph Atkin, um, there was three pro-Dixie people on, at that point, and they just basically, one resigned even before that. Uh, they didn't resign, but they just read a letter aloud to the uh, rest of the committee and just said, look, we're, we're not going to stick around for the vote. You know, uh, in fact, they were kind of we're protesting this whole process. You know, you guys didn't uh, give Dixie a fair shake. We thought we would go through this and see if you guys would really be fair here and you weren't. So we're not going to be part of this. And then they got up and left. And then when you fast forward to the board of trustees meeting, uh, who had to give final approval on the name that was given to them. Um, and again, they changed it to Utah tech university. Then he want, they were allowing some people from the name recommendation committee to speak. The public could be there, but they couldn't speak. And so the only people this meeting could talk are the board of trustees and the name recommendation committee. The chairman of the board of trustees is David Clark. And so um, so Randy got up and asked if he could speak. And, you know, David Clark treated him terrible and uh, just just horribly. And uh, he didn't would I mean, didn't even make sure he had a chair to sit in and uh, tried to do everything he could to stop him from speaking. And we had to point out that he hadn't resigned. He just left the meeting and said he wasn't going to be part of the voting process. Uh, And, you know, and luckily there were some people there from the DSU staff that were nice and finally gave him a chair. But, you know, he was just treated terribly and the whole public was watching. And this is just indicative of the whole process and how they treat everyone who speaks out against them. Is there any kind of accountability are these are these appointed positions? I mean, I, I'm just wondering at what point do, do these trustees answer to the public or do they? That is why we're in this mess is because no, they do not answer to the public. They're all appointed um, by the governor and um, 
They're all on the same team. The Board of Higher Education is appointed by the governor, and so is the Board of Trustees. So they are not. They're supposed to be a cross-section of people that would represent us, but, you know, they, they aren't. Most of them aren't even from here. So, yeah, they're not representing us at all, and they don't care what we think because we have no power to remove them. We have to just start voting for uh, – we have to do a better job vetting the people that we elect into city and state government, and that's that's how you fix this problem. You just have to be more vigilant on in, uh, in knowing who you're voting for. I would think part of it, too, might include um, limiting the things that people who are voted into office um, are given authority to act upon. Um, you know, this isn't to say take it all away from them, but I think there are some areas we could we could likely roll it back because – it doesn't sound like those who are being temporarily trusted with that power are necessarily using it for the good of the people and with the consent of the people. They're just kind of, nope, I'm here to lead you. You know, you shut up and do what you're told. That's how it comes off. Uh, it comes off that way because that's what's happening. <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty bad. And um, they just believe that, hey, look, we know better than you, and, you know, you guys need to just uh, be quiet and get on board because this is what's happening. They want everybody to believe this is a done deal, you know. That's another thing they're trying to promote is this is a done deal, you know. There's nothing you can do. But the truth is, the good news is uh, that it has to still get approval from the uh, from the House of Representatives and also from the Utah State Senate. So, uh this is where all Utahns just have to write their legislators and let them know and know in certain terms. If you vote uh, for a name that doesn't have Dixie in it or we uh, see that or in our opinion that you're kowtowing to cancel culture, not on this issue uh, alone, but other issues as well, then we're just we're not going to support your reelection. And they care about their jobs a lot. So that's that's how you solve this problem right now. The best way to solve it going forward is just to vote in better people who will pick better people. But for now, you know, we just have to make it clear to the Senate and to the House of Representatives that we're not going to tolerate this. So where where does it go from here? Obviously, there's been great organization, your group, uh, the um, Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. You've pulled a lot of people together and I think uh, presented a united front. Um, what are your plans from here? I'm sure this is not the only place this is happening. Do, do you see other groups uh, maybe coming together to help uh, bolster the ranks? Well, we, there's other, there is other coalitions, other groups who uh, have contacted us who want to pitch in. So, yeah, we have to figure out how, how, what that would look like and how they would do that. But, um, yeah, obviously it's a problem not just here. I mean, it's this, this cancel culture uh, movement is everywhere. And so, and, and people are rejecting it a lot. Um, but you know, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't save us in the short term. So, um, we have, we have to be uh, careful on how we approach this, but, um, yeah, I mean, we've had to deal with it locally up till now because there was no name chosen, right. And there was nothing being forwarded to the board of higher education. So now that that is being done, now we have to start fighting at the, you know, uh, up at the state level. And so that's where our resources and efforts are going to go. Okay, Brad, for, we've got about one minute left here. Tell people where they can go to get more information, where, they, where their voice can be magnified by others who are pulling in a common direction. So go to dsuhc.org or protectdixie.com. That's easier to remember. 
uh, and then also type in DSUHC uh, in Facebook. And then there's two pages. Uh, there's one you can just be on immediately, and there's one you have to join. Uh, go to the one you have to join because that one does have the most information. I, I got to hand it to you and your group, Brad. You guys have done marvelous work. You've also kept a lot cooler heads than I think I could have. Because this gets heated. I mean, this, this, uh, there, you know, it's easy, it's easy to feel attacked, but please keep up the good work. Thanks for coming on the show and let's talk again soon so people can keep abreast of this. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for having us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, I I got a loaded question for you. And I don't want you to think I'm trying to pick a fight when I ask this question, but... This is not an easy question for most people to answer. You ready for this? What does it mean to be worthy of being an American? Now, see, this is, you know, right now I, I, can, I can sense some people had a knee-jerk reaction. Ah, what are you talking about? Are you making fun of patriotism? Are you, you know, mocking patriotism? I'm not. I'm really not. Nor am I suggesting that the spirit of Toby Keith should beat in every American heart. But I'm asking you to consider, what does it mean to be worthy of being an American? I'm not talking about confrontational patriotism. I'm talking about simply understanding and living up to what we've been given. See, now I know it's if you felt, well, this is kind of going in an uncomfortable direction. Because all of us, I'm sure at some point, have just kind of coasted, right? Taking it for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an American. Ah, You can afford to be nonchalant because it don't get much better than this. Come on. We've all had the attitude at one time or another. But I don't don't know if you've looked around and noticed ah, that attitude doesn't really accomplish much. Saw an article by Kurt Schlichter. This was from townhall.com. There's a fair amount of red meat in this article, but I want to share it with you anyway because there are a couple of points that Kurt hits on that really spoke to me. Not so much for the people he's calling out. Oh, yeah, those, you know, such and such. But more for are, are my attitudes conveying that I don't value what I was given. So I'm going to ask you to keep that in the back of your mind. Again, my goal isn't to guilt, to guilt you or otherwise make you feel like, wow, you know, you <laughs> you really need to shape up here. It's more just a matter of what if we're what if we're not doing our part? Okay, with that in mind, here's what Kurt Schlichter had to say. He says, Well, I was wandering through Costco the other day as one of the five percent without some ridiculous mouth thong wrapped around my pie hole. I begin to rethink the French Revolution. Maybe it's gotten a bad rap. Still, Marie Antoinette only suggested that the normal eat cake. Hey, who doesn't like cake? But she didn't demand that the people humiliate and degrade themselves in every aspect of their lives. But he says our garbage elite does to us. And so many Americans are sheep who eagerly obey. 
Independence Day has come and gone, this year being not just a reminder of the greatness American, of the American ideal, but also a painful reminder of how so many of our fellow Americans have fallen short. They're delighted to forego the strenuous rigors of citizenship in favor of the flaccid idleness of serfdom. And Kurt Schlichter says it's pathetic and unworthy of a great people. And then he asks, what the hell are these sheep thinking? They were commanded by their betters to wear a mask inside, outside, while they drive their ridiculous Prius with the I'm with her and coexist bumper stickers. They were told not to wear one, then to wear one, then to wear two, and they did. The elite told them to get the vaccine because it would protect them, that the shots would make them free again. And they took the shots. But then immediately afterwards, the master cast told them that while they were now immune, they still had to wear a mask because science or something. It was never quite clear. Yet the sheep eagerly did so. They got bait and switched, and the sheep were satisfied with the switch part. He says there's nothing sadder than seeing some Chardonnay mom in a park in the sunshine with her little kids all made up like suburban banditos. But sporting a badge of shame on their faces is just a start. He says there's never enough humiliation for the sheep. Maybe degradation gives meaning to their empty lives, allowing them to feel something, anything. The elite wants to shear the sheep of self-respect. And the sheep line up clutching copies of Ibrahim X. Kendi's uh, obnoxious critical race theory handbook. They're told they must accept personal responsibility for the slaves they never owned and that they must therefore be accountable to people who were never slaves. And they obey, joyfully, competing to most completely abase themselves, shedding their history and their dignity and trading it away for the chance to be further disrespected and disenfranchised for the sin of having their great-grandfather come from the wrong continent. The media tells them to eat bugs, literally. The insect imperative is an evergreen story in the state media. How some obscure experts contend that red meat, the food of proud men and women, must give way to consuming cicadas and crickets. Why is it so important to get us to gobble beetles? Because we love red meat and it gives us joy, and that can't be allowed. No, we have to be broken and it doesn't get more broken than complying with the demand to fry up and nosh on a handful of locusts for the giddy amusement of our alleged betters, who certainly will not be giving up their ribeyes anytime soon. The excuse the elite gives for the bug-eating thing, there's always some excuse for their bizarre demands, is the weather, and how we must fear it instead of the things that truly threaten us. If we're worried that it might be a degree hotter in a century... We're not going to be worried about the elite's Chicom friends taking over or the elite consolidating its wealth and power at our expense. Pay no attention to the aspiring tyrants behind the curtain. Take cover. It's sunny or cold. Remember, every kind of weather is proof positive that climate change is a thing, and if you doubt it, you hate science. Now, he says, of the same ilk is the demand that we pretend ugly people are beautiful. Victoria's Secret did very well with attractive women, but people like attractive women, and that thought crime must be punished and all residual resistance to the elite's latest aesthetic decree must be purged from society. The placing of Grody on a pedestal accomplishes two things. First, it has the effect of making our generally fugly elite feel better about itself, since when we elevate mediocrity, it's their time to shine. 
The second is that we all know that a bulbous walrus or dude pretending to be a girl or a bony harridan with a bitter scowl and purple hair are not actually hot. The fun comes with making the proles lie and say they are. Everyone knows it's a lie. Everyone knows the emperor is going commando. So the juice comes from making people lie anyway. If you can make them lie, you own them. And many of us are so happy to hand over their personal pink slips to the elite. It's important to erase the competition, so God has to go. The elite tactic is to belittle and assault the believers. Your first Baptist church is a hotbed of pathogens and must be closed. But topping the list of essential enterprises is the peppermint cheetah. In the name of COVID, what can't pandemic panic do? It's out with amazing grace and in with pour some sugar on me. And they create idols to replace the Lord, to which the sheep reverently bow down. Did you see the ridiculous statue of Diana unveiled the other day? The tacky totem features that frivolous bippy with some generic boy and girl, leading them into a bright future of uninspired white wine and ennui. Move over Sistine Chapel, we got the people's princess and she'll make your pain go away. Perhaps the statue knockers were onto something. Kurt Schlichter says, and the sheep eagerly agree with the elite demand that they own no guns that they be disarmed, the better to encourage the kind of docility fitting for the bottom rung rung of the feudal ladder. You see, in Europe, where the people shrug and accept life under unaccountable bureaucrats, knowing there's nothing they could do about it anyway, even if their low-T civilization were to suddenly rediscover its manhood. Once Europeans sent crusaders to battle the heathens. Today, they sit in rapt attention childless and chestless, watching some auto-tuned crooner sing about how she loves to boogie all night long as Liechtenstein's entry in the Eurovision Song Contest. Mostly, he says, though, the sheep are told to pretend that they aren't sheep. And they do so, even if the shame of their submission somewhere, deep down inside them, gnaws at them. Now, I'm going to give you a second to catch your breath here. That was a pretty good flogging. Kurtzlichter is not holding back here. But this is, this is the pay dirt right here. He says, we are the greatest nation on earth, which today is a sad commentary on the human race as a whole. And sadly, so many of our fellow Americans are unworthy. Now, some may want to assign a little more chest-beating tone to that. I'm not so sure that's what I hear as I read his words. We are the greatest nation on earth. And I don't think that greatness is strictly from our military might. I think it comes from the ideals under which we were founded. With that firm reliance on divine providence as part of it. That's, that's an essential part of the greatness of this country. But what we are putting up with today, I do agree with his, his notion that many of our fellow Americans are unworthy. Perhaps... We are among those who are unworthy to call themselves Americans. So here's what he recommends. Kurt Schlichter says, be worthy and prepared because change is coming. Now, if that sounds cryptic, I mean, come on, you can can read into it what you want to, but there's something about that call to be worthy. We're going to talk about that when we come back because, you know, it's one thing to understand the proper role of government's It's one thing to be a clear and independent thinker in times of crisis. But what about moral education? Can a society get by without moral education? 
Stay with us. We'll talk about it after the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. And thank you once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you in part today by our friends at HSLAmmo.com, Pure-Light.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Man, oh man, what a, what a time to be looking to purchase a home. I mean, this is this is the most incredible real estate market. And, you know, the, the Intermountain West, I don't know what happened. I don't know when the memo went out, but somebody said, hey, <laughs> you know, if you're if you're looking for a place that, uh, you know, would would be a great place to hang or grow or thrive. Yeah, the Intermountain West is it. Utah is growing like crazy. Idaho is growing like crazy. If you're listening within the state of Utah, probably better get on the horn to uh, Heather Turner at Patriot Home Mortgage because time is of the essence. I put a link in the show notes at the com. You can just find it there at the bottom of the page. Click on it and it will put you in touch with her. All right. I mentioned in the last segment that uh, it's one thing to know how to think clearly and independently. And I believe that is one of the great skills that's going to make the difference between people who have options and people who don't. I'm trying to make that sound as least scary (laughs) as possible because I don't want you to feel like I'm just portending, you know, doom and disaster is, is approaching. But I am very concerned that, it, that even thinking clearly and independently isn't enough by itself. And when I saw Paul Rosenberg's primer on moral education, I wanted to see what his take was. It was well worth my while. I'm going to share it with you. I have a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for July 6th, 2021. Paul Rosenberg says, having completed a long study on thinking clearly, this is the... Uh, Logical fallacies, essays that I've been sharing with you over the weeks. He says, my next project in this line is moral education. Like critical thinking, this important field of study has been removed from Western education over the past century. And he says its restoration is, in my opinion, sorely needed. I aim to fill the gap. Moral education, however, he says, is a dicey subject. Many people have pre-existing opinions on the subject and, frequently, very strong ones. Still, moral education needs to be restored, and he says, I think I can work around these problems well enough. So, as a first step in this mission, he says, I want to explain my most basic thoughts on moral education. Here they are. Our purpose. He says, the purpose of moral education is to produce better human beings. Everything else comes second to that. Even our children sharing our own values is a secondary issue. Sharing the same values is beneficial, but the very best of values must first be found and then adopted by both parents and children. Sameness is nice, but he says quality is paramount. We want our children to exceed us, not to be limited by us. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'm very much interested in the restoration of of Western civilization, but that's not my purpose in addressing the subject. I value Western civilization for a number of reasons, and in our coverage, I'll use a lot of Western civilization's core stories. 
But he says, I do that for secondary reasons, mainly because I think a return to Western civilization is the best path forward for the greatest number of people just now and by a large margin. He says, the truth, however, is that even the best version of Western civilization we can conjure will be inferior to future models of civilization. He says, to me, the past is to be learned from and expanded upon, not to be constrained by. And beyond that, if we we err greatly, he says, if we try to attach ourselves and our children to any specific culture. His point here is cultures are things that we create, not which create us. We are primary, they are secondary. So we must find the very best principles we can and then actively, personally organize our culture around them. Next, he speaks about the deep need of purity in moral education, saying moral education is for all of us, of course, but it's especially something that's necessary for children. They develop far better with a clear hold on root principles. But planting principles in children is an awesome responsibility, indeed a sacred responsibility. In a way, that's scary, but the alternative is to do nothing let them be educated by television, social media, and political operatives. So frightened or not, he says, we must do this. The crucial thing here is to make our moral education as pure as possible. The stories and messages we convey should be benevolent, non-contradictory, and they should not use fear as a tool for compliance. The truth about a lot of moral tales is that they scare children into obedience and doing the right thing. Fear works faster than persuasion. But he says it also poisons those it corrects. So regardless of how deep the pedigree of scary stories may be, Paul Rosenberg says, I maintain that teaching them is a fundamental error. If we teach children to live by fear because it's easier and then praise them for doing so, they're more likely to be motivated by fear and to accept motivation by fear as legitimate all their lives. And so, he says, I'll be using a large number of old stories in our coverage, but I'll be changing some of them to remove fear-based motivation. In fact, I'll be modifying nearly everything in this study, including Bible passages. Now, as a fan of the Bible, he says, I'll be making those edits with care, but I'm aiming for zero confusion in these stories. I think young minds need to be protected. Now, at the same time, however, he says, I am for truth. And so the stories I tell will either be clearly fictional or will be as truthful as I can make them. I don't want to tell children great moral stories only to have them find out later that they were false. For example, while I will include the creation story of Genesis 1, I'm leaving out the fourth day when God creates the sun and the moon after creating light earlier. Regardless of any theological validity for both passages, they're confusing to a child, so I took one of them out. And he says, I encourage parents who wish to do so to explain the entire text to their children once they're old enough and solid enough to grasp such fine points. But he says the coverage, however, will be edited to remove confusion. Now, this is where it's interesting because he says, I expect parents to do this in their own way. Every child is different. Every parent is different. And he says, I'm making no claim that my thoughts are somehow perfect. I know that there are many good and kind people who disagree with me on certain points. And to such parents, I say this. I expect you to modify my text as you read it to your child. My goal is to communicate essential concepts in a way that a child can grasp. 
I've removed more or less everything, more or less everything self-contradictory, but no one knows your child better than you do. And no one has better incentives to make her or him into a good person. So choose the word and emphasis you think is best. It will be your job to transfer these concepts from the book to your child's mind. Now, he says, that said, I haven't dumbed down the text or used kitty words. I'm treating children as intelligent beings, even if sometimes ignorant. It will be the educator's job to fill the gaps in their understanding. He talks about the use of stories, saying for better or worse, stories are far easier for humans to remember than abstract principles, and especially so for children. More than that, stories communicate a main point quite deeply. There was a reason, after all, why Jesus taught exclusively in parables. So he says, I'm defaulting to storytelling. And a few last words. He says, there's much more to say on these topics, of course, and I'll introduce each story or lesson with an explanation of my choices for adult readers and the parents of young readers. And in some cases, those introductory notes may be long. But he says, come what may, people need solid moral foundations. Without them, their lives become easier or with them, rather, their lives become easier, more comprehensible, and more rewarding. Without them, confusion and disastrous effects reign. So he says, I leave you with a passage from Saul of Tarsus, that would be St. Paul, who said, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. And Paul Rosenberg says that is good advice for us all. Now, I don't want to throw an appeal to authority out here, but I will tell you, this, this very closely mirrors the approach that George Washington Took. When, if you read his farewell address, he talks about how morality and religion are indispensable supports to a free country, to a, to a good, proper government. Now, I know some people see religion as nothing more than a source of, well, it's, you know, oppression and it's brainwashing and it's control and it's, it's a bad thing. But if you are trying to teach large groups of people... Right from wrong. This is where religion shines. And the people who take it to extremes, yep, there are going to be some of those, but most of them are going to be right in the sweet spot. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is The Brian Hyde Show.